Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I have a very special guest. Julio Bogany is a member of the Tongva tribe, the California state-recognized Native American tribe that first populated Greater Los Angeles. She serves as a tribal elder, is on their tribal council, and is also the tribe's cultural consultant. As you will hear during our conversation, education has been at the heart of her professional and personal journey. Julia was a preschool director, a middle school coordinator, and instructed child development for home daycare. She is vice president of the Keepers of Indigenous Ways, a Tongva nonprofit, president of Caravanga Springs, which are a pair of springs located on the campus of University High School in Los Angeles, a representative of California tribes on Route 66, a member of the California Native American College Board, and an elder in residence at Pitzer College. She teaches Native culture, history, and women's issues at the Claremont Colleges. Julia is also the creator of tobevisible.org, a website dedicated to bringing more attention to the Tongva tribe and especially Tongva women. Before I roll the interview, I wanted to give some background on a couple of important elements and people that Julia references. As Californians well know, the missions are a network of 21 Catholic churches that were built between 1769 and 1823 from San Diego to San Francisco. In the Los Angeles area, the San Gabriel Mission represented the fourth mission and was built in 1771 in Montebello. Following floods and an earthquake, it was moved several years later to what we now know as San Gabriel. The San Fernando Mission was built in 1797 and was the 17th mission. Toy Perino was a Tongva medicine woman who was considered to be a principal actor in a failed uprising at San Gabriel Mission in 1785. She was exiled after her trial to Mission San Carlos Borromeo, eventually marrying a Spanish soldier and having three children. She's often viewed as a freedom fighter, and her likeness was the inspiration for a 20 by 60 foot mural in the Boyle Heights neighborhood of Los Angeles. Eulalia Perez was a California-born cook, midwife, and eventually the keeper of the keys at San Gabriel Mission. Mexican Governor Jose Figueroa rewarded Perez as the grantee of the 14,402-acre Rancho del Rincón de San Pascual, which encompasses present-day Pasadena, South Pasadena, and San Marino. While at San Gabriel, she was in charge of industry and the education of Native Americans and was the midwife to the Pico and Sepulveda families. Finally, Victoria Reed was a widow from a prestigious Tongva family. She married Scottish-born Hugo Reed in 1837. Hugo would go on to write a series of letters to the Los Angeles Star, the first newspaper in Los Angeles, which ran from 1851 to 1879. The letters described the indigenous people who lived in the Los Angeles area and are seen as a tremendous contribution to our understanding of the Tongva tribe, both before and during the mission period. If you're interested in them, copies are available on Julia's website, tobevisible.org, as they provide incredible insights into the Tongva people and their culture. This was a fascinating conversation. So without further delay, Tongva elder, Julia Bogany. Julia, thank you very much for coming on the show today. I greatly appreciate it. And I look forward to our discussion. As we kind of talked about before the show, I'm incredibly interested in history. And when I was thinking about launching this podcast, the history of Pasadena was the perfect place to start. 
and the Tongva tribe is the history of Pasadena. It is the very start of the city. And so before we kind of get into your journey and the Tongva tribe and kind of get into some details, I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about your personal journey, your, your upbringing. And so can you tell us a little bit about kind of where you were born and raised? Okay, so I'm Julia Bogany, and I was, I was born in Santa Monica. Um, I was there till um, I was 10. My parents divorced, so I wound up, uh, we moved to um, Baja, California for three years. Then I came back uh, at age 13 and went to uh, San Fernando and went to school in San Fernando. Okay, and, so very close, probably close to the San Fernando mission. Yes. <laughs> so we can, and we're going to talk about the missions a little bit later. So as you're growing up, what role did your indigenous heritage play in your upbringing? Not, not a lot. So, because it seems to skip generations, you know, when we're talking about who we are. Uh, so I was, um, I knew we were Indian, but I didn't know what tribe or who until I was 13. And then. So how did you find out and kind of how did you go down that road of exploring more about yourself? So uh, when I was 13, my mother gave me my papers for the BIA with our family tree, letting me know, you know, this has my degree of blood and who I am. And so uh, it wasn't until like I was in my 30s that I decided I wanted to find my people. And so it's that it became important to me to find them. And so I did find them at 39 because they're kept it just wound it up I wound it up in the right group right <laughs> so so it's like okay but uh today you know and and people call us fractions and I call us team players mm. we encompass the entire LA basin and the four channel islands so we would have always been split up right right today it's a different world because we we do more of the politics of the world that we're in so it's it's a it's a it's a doggy dog program <laughs> versus the way we lived in a in a traditional way. Oh, interesting. So you know we would always meet together at some point, but you know it's really large. At what part in LA could we all meet if we right. encompass the entire LA basin? No, it's a very so, Mm-hmm. No, and it's kind of interesting to hear kind of your the different groups that like you said factions, but it's one big family. It's just kind of different approaches to it. It sounds like, right? Okay. So, um, so I wanted to. Um, so right now, I I, I run Kuruanga Springs in Santa Monica, which is where I was born. My my uncle Al was the uh, no longer here with us, but he was the captain there. So that would have been the village I came from originally, next to University High School, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's where I was born. And and so it's like, um, it was funny that I'm going back to those circles <laughs> and winding up back where I started. But um, but it's been a great journey, I think, because at first, you know, um, the stuff that I read, because there were not nowhere in history, for one. And so for years, for at least 40 years, I just taught, you know, what I knew. I started off with just the culture, um, the history of our tribe. And then I kind of moved up into uh, different areas like the water or plants and different things about us, about how we lived. As I studied, I started researching on my own. So I have like lots of books that just have the word Tongva in it. But um, actually what I say is that the, the, 
the part of getting Father Sarah colonized as a as a saint or canonized as they as they as they say is what helped us because people began to write. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Native communities began to write the, the stories. And so it really helped me. So now we're in we're entire books, right? <laughs> we, you can see us on every page. So I did find during um, the mission studies, there was a book that was written at UCLA by a Spanish student that only wrote in Spanish. So I was at a meeting in uh, San Francisco and I said, oh, there's this book. It says Gabrielino and you spell it the same way in English and Spanish. And uh, Los Angeles is the same thing. You spell right. it the same. So I picked it up and I go to my hotel room and and I read like eight chapters before I re- realized. I said, boy, you are on every page before I realized that it was in Spanish, <laughs> you know. So that's how I, that was really great. So I always say that the reason we had to, even though we were we moved to Baja for my uh, uh, stepbrothers is to get uh, get their green cards, right? Mm-hmm. That it was it was a, a place I was supposed to go to be yes. able to do our, my research on who I am, right, and know the language. Because it's better when, when you can read the research in its original language versus translating it, somebody else translating it. There's always something that's lost. Yes. No, that's. So, oh, I'm glad to see that it's kind of come full circle, like you said. Who are your influences? Were there any people that were incredibly important to you? No, I kind of okay. just kept finding, I, people would say there's Tongba here because, you know, we have a group in Riverside. At that time, there was a couple, but, and and then I decided to go closer to the mission, you know. So one day I just walk in and, and they were holding the, our meetings at, um, at, at the church where our office is. And I said, I, I somehow, I guess they left the door open for the weekend by accident. And when I opened it, the alarm system went off. Oh, no. And, and it was to the school. <laughs> so the chief said, lady, I don't know who you are, but you did a great entrance. <laughs> and I said, like, so I showed him my paperwork, right? He says, oh, all of these are your cousins. So I went from having no family except for my children to having a family of 300 instantly. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, and then started kind of uh, talking with my cousins that we hadn't, that we hadn't grown up with to, to get to meet them and see what they were doing and started working with them. And we said, I needed to do it for my, for my family. So we would stop skipping generations. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. It seems like from your background, you've always been in education. You were a preschool director, you were a middle school co- coordinator and instructed child development. And now you're the elder at, in residence at Pitzer College and you teach at uh, the Claremont Colleges. Yes. Um, so, so how did you choose education and then how does education kind of influence how you um, approach your heritage? So, you know, we lived in San Fernando and I was like three blocks from... <laughs> the high school in San Fernando, but we had to move because the freeway was coming through. Mm. So none of us, so I didn't finish high school for sure. <laughs> so I left home at 15, but and then I took it, I got my GED mm-hmm. in my 20s and I decided, um, they asked me, well, what do you want to do now? What kind of job do you want? And I thought, well, I've done this raise kids. I guess I'll be a preschool teacher. So I went... <laughs> So I went to uh, this preschool that was in in San Bernardino, and I said, um, 
I started there with two-year-olds, but then I noticed that I had always worked two shifts just to support my kids. And I needed, so I decided to go to college and I went to college, became a preschool teacher, then became a director and owner of two schools. You oh, know? Wow. And, and then I started teaching in the Spanish community how people could open their own daycare homes and uh, what that would look like and how, you know, to be self-sufficient. And then I decided, okay, so then I decided to start working as a preschool teacher. And I stayed home for maybe a year and I uh, got invited to the University of Oklahoma to do a, um, a program for Native American children ages 0 to 13 who had been uh, sexually abused. Oh, wow. And, and to do it by the Native way, right? So here I'm going all the way to Oklahoma University, and I'm thinking, all these there's 29 tribes and they had such great stories to mm. tell about their people and how they were raised and i came home and i said what are our stories and my cousin said make them up you're old <laughs> and I said, no so i started really praying about those stories and now i have 300 stories 300 so stories. People, every place I went to teach about my culture, people would say, oh, you haven't seen this book? <laughs> you know, and there were several stories. I'd go to museums and 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 I would look in old cabinets, like museums that are in um, like a, a cemetery, right? Like Olga Manza. Mm-hmm. And so I would go there and, and there was this little cabinet. And there was a book there about California history and it had five of our stories I thought, wow, that's really cool. It took me two years to decide to order it. And I got a brand new copy for $200. <laughs> and I was really thrilled. So, but I don't care where I went to teach. Someone would always like hand me a story. <laughs> you know, That's incredible. You need to write. I mean, I know you, you're an author. And you, we'll talk about that. But you need to record all those stories and write them down. Because I think that we would, everyone would benefit from hearing them. Right. I'd like to put them all together into a Tongwa storybook yes. <laughs> and do use all Tongwa storybooks. Right. Because in, in, in our, you know, in our time, we all shared like the stories that all the tribes in California have, but they know where it is by the location. You know, like if it's at Pacific Palisades or in Pasadena and Eagle Rock, where those stories came from, what tribe right. they belong to. But we might have all shared them in order because that was the way of teaching our children. Right. So. We, we think that a lot of the culture was lost, but it sounds like a lot of it's preserved. It right. just, it's just putting, trying to find them in all these different little places. Yeah. And, and for me, I've really been blessed that people think, you know, they know what I do. So they just kind of like hand them to me. So, <laughs> so, so I was, at, I was really funny. I was at the a main museum in um, downtown LA and I was teach. I was. That's when I first got my first book that I did as five important women to me in LA. Mm-hmm. And so this guy comes and he says, "My ancestor slapped me this morning and told me to come see you." And he came from the high desert. I said, "Oh, I live in San Bernardino. You were like, you know, you could have used to in there." He said, "I don't know why I'm here." So he buys my book and he gets to the story of Asusa. Mm. He says, "That's why I came." Forty years I looked for that story. Really? And he brought it to me. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is just like, that was like made it. Because I every time I'd ask people about Azusa, they'd say, oh, people make up stories. Don't worry about it. You know, but I kept, I said, no, she came to me in my dreams. I kept looking for her, but I couldn't find her. And so here he comes in the name of, in Azusa means blessed miracle. Mm. So the 
book for the city of uh, Susa for their 50th anniversary. They made this little booklet with her story. Oh, and nice. and then when we did the we did a revival probably about six years ago, maybe a little bit longer, now at the Coliseum in, in LA, right? Okay. And so I got up to do the prayer and I said, oh, let the heavens just burst with rain and it starts raining. And I go, oh, shoot, I better watch what I say. <laughs> <laughs> but we handed out this little card. They said, if you want healing, go to Azusa. Mm-hmm. So people came, right? Because we had these little cards we were passing out everywhere. And they were like a little business card, but that's all it said. And in her book is those words. Mm-hmm. Yet nobody had seen the, the book. <laughs> You know, and so it was just really powerful to me that uh, to find that connection. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was meant to be that yes. you kind of found this person that, and that all the story kind of came together. It seems like as an elder of the Tongva tribe that you're an ambassador. And I think that was really made clear during your conversation and presentation of the public library. Is that kind of how you, you view yourself now as an educator, as an ambassador for the tribe? I I do. Um so I just did a, 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 they're doing a documentary on me and it was like, what does visible, to be visible mean? And what does being invisible mean? I don't know. For me, I'm kind of in the same spot. I mean, now I have too much exposure. Or I have <laughs> you know, I don't know how good it is. But I, I think I see myself as really, um, allowing the tribe to to come back right mm-hmm. it's like we never left our, and that's why my quote is i tongue women never left the land they just became invisible right and so that's how i feel that that's what's happened we became so invisible that uh people didn't know that we were here i think that that's a great kind of segue to a kind of a larger conversation about the tongue tribe and, and kind of your history when I started kind of going down this road and doing some of my research, and I have stacks of paper now that I've printed everything I could find on the internet, and um, I've tried to buy as many books as I can to, to kind of better understand. And you know, when I was growing up in Los Angeles, you know, on occasion we go to the Southwest Museum. Now the Southwest Museum has now been acquired by the Autry Museum, so it's now yes. it's it's not a place to go in in South Pasadena, kind of in the area. But you know, from what I, I gather, there were about uh, about five thousand members of the Tongva tribe um, across about a hundred villages back before the Spanish encountered the area in seventeen sixty nine, I believe. Is that kind of your understanding of in terms of the the size of the tribe and how many villages there were? Yes. So villages were, remember the villages had like 25 people or 50 or 75 or, or a hundred. They were, so you, so the small, the small villages were the ones that were taken to the mission. Everyone did not attend the mission because they were larger villages and they didn't have enough uh, people with them to, to come get us. Oh, interesting. <laughs> So San Nicolas Island, let's say, so we have the four channel islands, right? Mm-hmm. Catalina, San Nicolas, San Clemente, and Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And there was no contact at, during that part of history at um, San Nicolas. They've only okay. found like 10 beads. So that means there was no contact there. Oh, interesting. You know, until after the missions, you know. When you look at the different uh, villages and like you said there's like it could range from 25 to 75 to 100 people you know how different were the villages 
you know, across the tribal land, which is the LA Basin, it's about 2,500 miles, I think is kind of the estimate. You know, how different were, was the village uh, Hahamunga, if I'm pronouncing that correctly? Hahamunga. Hahamunga. In, in <laughs> Pasadena, um, obviously the inland versus the coastal is different. But yes. I mean, how different were the tribes in a Pasadena versus Tahunga or Pasadena and Azusa? It depends on the environment, right? The okay. kind of water that we had there. So like, you know, in, in, in Pasadena, we had the Arroyo Seco. And I always question, is that the beginning or the end of the Arroyo Seco? Because <laughs> I teach for the Arroyo Seco, right? Which, it all depends what side of your, you're on. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So, but then there was the ocean people, right? And then there was the the people that were out in the islands. Their life was totally different than the people on the shore. Sure. And then we have the mountain people, right? So there's like the history was shared with each other. It's just what we weren't that different, but we had different dialects of our language because we're in and probably because we had a different plants so we're trading even with each other right oh interesting because there's always this question about war I said why we always we <laughs> we were all family you know and today yeah. there's about three thousand of us we're just and now so my son lives in Texas so I say we're just scattered further out <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, it's really interesting to hear about the, the differences in the villages. Obviously, it uh, makes sense that primarily fishing uh, villages would be different than, you know, mountain, obviously. But it sounds like yeah. culture was the same, but the language is slightly different and also kind of the food sources. Yeah, what you're eating. Or what, what you're, you're eating. Yeah, what are you going to be taking? And what is people across the island are going to have a lot of, uh, in the islands are going to have a lot of fish, but are they going to bring that fish all the way in a in a canoe to the mainland? No, right. people have to go visit them. <laughs> right? It's right. kind of like when you visit the Shumash. Not, they had like maybe at Satwewa, which is in Newberry Springs, right? Mm-hmm. We wanted to go fish there. So you couldn't fish unless you, you won the dance while the chiefs were working, right? And planning the calendar for the next year. So then you dance. And if you didn't win the dances, then you waited till the next morning or you could fish that day. But if you lost, then it was you had to spend the night. So it wasn't a war. It was just a way to, uh, you know. And so even oaks. So the oaks only give every two years. And acorns were side main, main staple. So there's going to be years that everybody's oaks aren't giving or not enough for that family. So people could come. And your oak trees on on your territory, so I'll say like the botanical gardens in Claremont, they would have so many marked that were for Tongva only. But if you came from the Shumash or from the Serrano, you could come take whatever you wanted from the other ones. As long there wasn't no problem with it until you came and took from their tree, right? Oh, and the ones that are marked, that's enough to feed that that village. Well, I, I had no no concept of that. And that's incredible in terms of the ability to share, but also you need enough to provide for your own tribe and your own people. It was a shared uh, environment. You were sharing trees, even if they weren't, you know, your your own, you were sharing them with other tribes. You all had a collective idea of what the importance of the trees were and that it meant something to everyone. Right. So men in those years uh, kind of were like, you never said, oh, hi, I'm John, <laughs> right? <laughs> you would you would have a, a tattoo 
of your village. So they would know if you were coming from from uh, Mombaldi, Jawat, right? If you were coming from there, you had a picture of Mombaldi on your tattoo on your on your chest. So they knew where you were coming from. And if you were Shumash, you have your tattoos from your villages. So pe- people knew who they were by just their tattoos. That that's interesting. So did every did every person have tattoos with their village on them? Yes. Really interesting. You know, as you kind of look and explore that, are there any illustrations of those tattoos? I mean, do you know? No, I did buy a book of tattoos. And and so like um, women had like, um, so it shows like, it does show images of women having different tattoos, you know. So we say, you know, it said, um, you know, if they were, uh, yes, got into puberty or they were a married woman or they were a widow, they changed their tattoos on their chin so that people in the villages that came would know if the women were available or not, right? Tickle, they have one for corner girls because (laughs) they said that her tattoo is meant I'm available. You'd mentioned, I think on your website, we'll talk about your website later, but you have a, um, a map of the villages, the known villages. Yes. And I think you mentioned during your conversation with, at the public library, the map is a living document that right. it's constantly changing. How have you discovered new villages to put on the map? I mean, what's that process like in terms of the history and and, term, and then the research that goes into identifying what these places were and their significance? So, you know, there's a lot of information on, on names out there for the village. Some of them have like 10 names because it depended what what other tribe called that village. Okay. And we have to find ours. But also that the villages on the map, when I show the blue lines, which are waters, that our villages aren't just like we're living next to each other, right? We're living along the the rivers and the and the um the arroyos and the and the springs. So it's showing you that we weren't all cluttered into one place, right? We were it was pretty it's like going to Oklahoma, you know, their house is here and then miles away is the next one. <laughs> right. So that like you said that the map is always evolving. Is that as a result of possible like excavation or development that they uncover something? Right. That might, you know, and how do we determine uh, in today's world? The biggest problem is how do we determine whose land it is? Right. Right. Did people come work here? So we say like Santos Manuel from the Serrano, which was a chief there, was actually born in Catalina. While were his parents visiting? Because they talk a lot about visiting us. Right. And that's visiting them. But does he claim Catalina? No, because he was just born there. <laughs> and it's it's just the same thing for us, right? So women left to be, uh, when they got married, they went to the men's village. So um, t- I talk about uh, Victoria Reed. She was going to marry a Serrano, but she couldn't because she was to become chief. So oh, interesting. And a Serrano had a story about the man with the broken heart, and we had a story about the woman with the broken heart, right? <laughs> <laughs> And I think this would be a good time to kind of segue in terms of the first contact that was made with the Spanish and the influence of the Spanish and the missions. The first mission in Southern California, well, in, in the Los Angeles area was the San Gabriel. Right. And uh, it was established in 1771, then moved from Whittier to its current place. The objectives of the mission were to obviously uh, spread Spanish culture, but also was right. to convert 
the indigenous people to Catholicism. Um, you know, how did the Tongva culture and its religion kind of survive during that tumultuous time? So we had the Book of Shinishinix, and I don't call that a religion. A lot of people call it a religion. I think uh, Shinishinix was a great leader, and he led the people. But okay. when contact came, he went underwater. So I guess that's not a that's not a religion. <laughs> right? So, but so the first mission, which is called a Mission Vieja, is was in Whittier on the San Gabriel River. <laughs> Right. San Gabriel River, we kept making fun of them. They built it like five times, right? Because it kept flooding. Mm. And then the earthquake came and took it. So then by then we have Father Crispy here and he's going, he's traveling to looking for a place to put the next mission San Gabriel to renew, do a new one, right? So he stops at Curuaga Springs in Santa Monica. And he thinks about that's where he wants to want it because we have water you have fresh water and then you're a few blocks away from the ocean that, that'd be the gorgeous place to put it right right but he kind of keeps going he doesn't remember to come back because he's you know kind of checking out the the what's around and i guess he saw the mountains and he thought they were prettier than just being around the ocean <laughs> so he winds up in san gabriel and so the mission winds up in, in a city of San, in San Gabriel, but the land of the mission, you have to understand, goes all the way to Cerritos mm. in, its, in its time and to uh, Dominguez Hills. That's all part of the mission property, right? So when we found uh, a, two years ago, people that were buried under the railroad tracks, people say, how did they get there? Well, that was part of the land. Right. It wasn't always cemented and, the, you know, they were already there. So it's kind of, so like, so when we see to the, did, were we, I don't know if they actually, people kind of, there wasn't no sign saying, okay, if you want a job, you can come here. So I have diaries of children that kind of, a lot of them wanted to, get out of there and then there's those people that wanted to stay mm. right that 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 was okay so and that happens in any type of you know forced thing you know people can be comfortable with it and people can just want to get out and be free but it, it also but that during that time it also bring these huge animals um kind of destroy the land right now right. you're making live soap versus our natural soap <laughs> so it's like so anyway so then um what happens with that is that the missions become so i always say that the missions did not call us gabrielinos that came with the rancho era with the spanish oh they did not come what did the 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 priests didn't have time to change our language that's why they brought there was indians from different tribes in san gabriel the kumiai were brought there as people were traveling because they spoke the closest to spanish so they could interpret people were sent to spain to learn how to, the architecture if we if we had known that architecture would he have been beating hut me uh, making his hut homes no <laughs> 
they would have came into castles, right? Right. <laughs> so, but, and then I asked the bishops, because I belong to the mission studies, how long did it take to build each mission? And he said it take about 13 years per mission. So when you're thinking about that, how many people are dying during that 13 years, right? And how many people are actually surviving the life there? And what is, you know, and, and, and that's a long time. So, so what happened, so when we were talking about um, holidays, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, this, this Monday is the, is the equinox, right? Mm -hmm. So it's pretty close to Christmas, right? So we're partying along with them, (laughs) but they're thinking we're partying because Christmas is coming. We're partying because it's the time of a winter when people relax and teach their children and, you know, they rest, they have that. So every, I always say every culture actually started with nine months because, and then people changed it to 12. And I asked my professor who did that, you know, because every culture, if you look back in history has only had a nine month calendar, we have a 12 month calendar because we want to fit more in it. And during those years that people are saying people are committing suicide, it's not, it's because we live in a fast pace and there's no time for family. So then comes, uh, here comes the spring when our bears come out and we celebrate the beginning of the new birth of the plants and everything. But also comes Easter. So the we still have the priest fool that we, we're really trusting what they're thinking, what they're trying to tell us. <laughs> Right. And I th- I think that's the best way to put it that yeah, it would make sense, right? They're not talking to us. They are seeing us party at the same time. The calendars overlapped and the celebrations <laughs> overlapped. They weren't exclusive. You weren't celebrating Christmas, but you were celebrating the winter solstice. You weren't celebrating Easter, you were celebrating other holidays. Yeah. But it just so happened because of the calendar overlap. Yeah, Dolly. Yeah. So, so you mentioned earlier that the smaller villages were absorbed into the mission system, where the larger, it sounds like the larger villages were not. Is that is that right? Right. They weren't. So, but if they were coming, if they were coming, you might have picked up somebody on the road, right? Okay. But more likely they were heading higher up in the mountains, right? If But it wouldn't have been an entire village. It would have been as people noticed what was going on. So inside the Mission Sanguero, you see this beautiful art, right? Yes. But we're really telling our story, if you ever really paid attention to those, right? Mm. So they have like replicas in there now versus the originals, but they do have the originals in the museum. And you tell that they're telling our story. And they're not really telling their story because the art came from the from the Tangwa, right? Right. You had now have a, a relationship with the San Gabriel Mission. Yes. And so, sorry, two questions. One is how how did that relationship come come about? And then the second part of it is, can you talk a little bit about the conditions of the Tongva people? People have removed bells nowadays, right? And of course, I can't picture that because it's it was in the era that I was there. In you know, they use bells to me. They they take me to San Francisco, right? <laughs> <laughs> But that there was there was that regiment inside um, in the diaries that the children, you know, they knew they had to get up when the first bell rang and you had to pray and 
get up and go start work, right? You got to eat something. Then there's another bell for you to take a rest. And there's another bell to go back to the church again before you go finish the job and then you go to dinner. But it's they, they live by those bells, right? Mm. Um, but I showed, so in February, I took the bishops, uh, the priest and, and the head of the Catholic church nun, and, and we did this walkthrough because I said, uh, I need to show you, well, first that how we started was I have a friend that works for the Catholic archdiocese who's Yaki. And she, she kind of, I said, you know, I have a problem with this mission. I go in there and I tell, I tell people right down um, you know, like, what do you see in this church? You know, you see this little pulpit up in the air. Uh, Father Sarah was short, so he had to climb for it to do the message. I said, but when we get outside, I'll tell you about it. <laughs> you know, well, let's go look at the, you know, they have, that's where they filmed the movie with uh, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz doing a wine scene in their movie, right? Uh, that was filmed right there at San Gabriel Mission. It was. I, I had no idea. It, it had. They have. Yeah. They have. They have their picture in the museum, and they have. <laughs> it's been a number of years since I've been there. Obviously. So yeah. So and they had this little white room right where she was smashing the grapes. Smashing the grapes, right? Yeah. So, so it's like, you know, they have all this stuff, and then like maybe. Four years ago, they put up this bench to Eurelia Perez, which was the keeper of the keys. Mm. Now, she wasn't Tongva. She came from Baja, California. She had worked at San Diego for years and then comes to San, to San Gabriel Mission, to the new mission, right? And decide, and she's the keeper of the keys. So I could say to like a fourth grader, I would say, you know, she kept the keys to the dorms for the girls. Because they're separated, right? So the girls get hurt. To the to the to the adults, I can say, you know, our ch- our children are raped there, and nobody could let them in but her. Mm. So I I teach this this class every other year with um with Andrew University, right? Mm-hmm. And they say, yeah, but maybe she had to because they 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 threatened. I said, I don't care. Then I would not have hold the key, right? Right. <laughs> so, and then, uh, so then there's the kitchen. And in the kitchen, a couple of years ago, I bought the book. I bought this coloring book at Huntington Library because they were doing the mission program there. And, you know, they had all this exhibit on the missions. Mm-hmm. So, and I bought this coloring book and I didn't even notice it there. I just knew it was coloring books. So I got home. There's a picture of women being shackled on the floor with chains, and they're they're they have them tied down to the floor, right? Those chains holding their legs, and they're older women. So before I did my presentation, I said I colored the pictures really nice. I can color, <laughs> and then but there's a young girl. There's two older women on the floor shackled with chains, so they don't run away. It says, but the young girl is just on her knees. She doesn't have a top on. She has her tattoo that she's, you know, already gone through a puberty ceremony. Does she not run as fast as the older women? Or is this so you can come take her whenever you want? Mm. And, and I just left that question with them, right? And why would they put a picture like this in a coloring book? <laughs> you know, for children to color today, Right. So it's like, you know, so, you know, in their story, there was the story I heard about the 
um, I had heard it for years and years. People would tell a story about this. Uh, this guy was, uh, his wife was getting raped and he went to hit, uh, get the soldier and his head was chopped up and was left on a stick in the, in the mission, right? Outside the mission so people would know what would happen if they interfered. I said, and then my, I named my, my oldest great-granddaughter, I named her uh, Cactus Flower. And my granddaughter said, why do you name her that? I said, well, you know, she's kind of, she's cute, but she's a little prickly. She has to have the last word. Then the, the, I bought this book at a thrift store so I could cut up the cactus, you know, and put it in a little photo album. And there was that story. Good thing I didn't start cutting the book first. I just went through the pages and there was that story. So it just kind of showed up, right? And I was like, wow, I've heard this story forever and ever, but now I found it. So then you don't want to cut the book. But it's like, so when I when I first started with the mission, there was this sign that came when you went out the gift shop and it said the Spanish came. Now remember that the Spanish took the missions from the from the church. Right. right? And turned them into forts. But it said this the Spanish came. Well, Mexico came because Spain was already there. Mexico comes and take and comes with these beautiful horses but they deal with the redskins so my question to it took me three different priests there before i got it out i said why would you put that there you bring fourth graders here and a lot of them are tongva mm. why would they say i'm a tongva indian if you have their names as redskins why not put our names and then outside, there's, it's still there, but it's going to move. Is um, It says that, uh, that when the Jesuits came, they had to deal with the pagans. And I said, did you ask us what we believed in? So the way I, I, I approached the bishop, I said, I serve the Most High God. Who is it you serve? And he said, why? I said, because this is the first sign of profiling in California. Did you call us a pagan? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, okay, so what is it you want? I said, I want to tell the truth inside the mission. So they said, okay. So then I had a friend that teaches at um, Cerritos College, and he, he brings this class every year to, to my going through the mission because they, they do California history, right? Mm -hmm. And he says, well, what they asked me, what do you think about Father Sarah becoming a saint? And he says, go ahead and tell him, but do it fast before God strikes us dead. And I said, who's he? Which God's going to strike me dead? He says, yes, tell him the story. So I said, well, Catholic Church has always had saints. They did not have a saint for murderers and rapists. And now they do. Mm. And they said, and the students say, because these are college students, they say, Boy, she can say that with a smile, you know. So it's just like sometimes, you know, like when when we were talking, when I was talking against the word, uh, talking for the word genocide, I was talking about the, those grapes that Lucille Ball was in there, and all of us had seen that, you know. I said, you know, that San Gabriel had the best wine that it sold all over the United States because it was the best wine, and do you know why? And they said, no. So I said, because the people at the missions were killing our men and our children. You don't think the women were getting back at them? 
they were peeing in the grapes, you know, and, and that's why it was the best wine. <laughs> so it sounds like what you you encountered at St. Gabriel, and it sounds like that's in the process of changing. Is yes. is, is is whitewashing? Yeah, you know, we're we're, we're focusing on Lucille Ball. Um, stomping grapes and making wine, but we're not celebrating the original inhabitants of the area that actually built the mission. Right. And, and you're even honoring Eurelia Perez. That yes, she probably made, married a tongue at some point, but why did you build her this bench to honor her when she really was a destruction to the people? So that was the problem for me. And then I just think that it's about, so I've had a couple of ceremonies there at the mission. You know, I told the bishop, I just want to have this bonfire. And he says, why, Julia? Because I want my ancestors to be released out of these walls. So I kept kidding about the bonfire, right? So I took some sage, and for some crazy reason, instead of taking my abalone shell, I said, I'll just put it in a terracotta pot, you know, the bottom part of the pot holder. I put it in there, and because the clay was wet, it exploded. Oh, no. (laughs) And I said, whoops, <laughs> there I go saving. <laughs> so, but so we laughed, but then, you know, I, and then I made everybody a necklace, and I don't even know what that ceremony looks like. I just wanted to pray to allow my ancestors to leave the walls. And if people want to continue as Tongwa, continue to go to church there, they don't go there because our ancestors died there, but they go there because that's where they want to serve. Right. And, and 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 I don't have a problem with that. I just don't want I, I said, I yeah, I was raised Catholic and I, you know, and I, I think I was maybe like 24 when I changed. But that was only because I didn't want somebody to tell me about God. I wanted to walk with God. And, and that was the only difference. It wasn't because I had something against the religion. But I said, of course, in Catholic school, I went to Catholic school uh, for three years in in what it what happened is that we didn't learn about the missions. We learned about the crusades and their battles, but we never learned about the missions. You know, I'm, I'm 40 now. The missions were, I went to Catholic school and the missions Mm -hmm. were a big part of our fourth grade education, which is, you know, very common. You know, we all chose missions and we had to build missions, models of missions, but we don't understand the complexity of the history of the missions. And I hope that that's that that continues to change. Right. So February, uh, the mission studies is coming to San Gabriel. I've been going for 17 years and I'm going to do my they're going to have a tour of going to four missions and to hear the stories of the people. Uh, so I'm doing I'm not I'm not trying to like traumatize children, but I want to say, you know, here's the yaka that we use for soap. Mm-hmm. Right. The lie in the cement to make it in is what destroyed our people, right? Why would we bring that here? So we weren't in need of of that because we had soap, right? We had Mm. so, and then the olives that promoted all the olive oil for everywhere, (laughs) these trees that were not natural to this land, you know, everything around there was about making money, right? And... And, and that's what it's always been. But I had so when the when the the roof burned, I got many phone calls at five in the morning, and and you know people would say, "Oh, now they can tell the truth." I said, "No, no, no, no. We've been talking for eight years now. 
Right. We are really working together. You know, I don't have to be Catholic to be part of the lesson of that mission because, you know, my people died building this mission. I can tell that I can I can teach my people, right? And mm-hmm. I can teach anybody who any school that comes. And I and I tell when I took the priesthood through the through the um walk, I said, I would never disrespect this house because to me it's still God's house. But let me tell you, you know that's pulpit up there and this guy, I know Father Sarah was short, but you know what? It's it's domination. Mm. When you sit above somebody like that, when you stand up there above the people, you know, because it would have been just as easy to sit down with them and talk with them. Right. I think you you phrased it really well in terms of why you no longer practice Catholicism and and that you respect them. You wanted to walk not with them, but alongside them. Yes. And and I think that's really kind of an important image to, to think about your website, which is tobevisible.org. The purpose of the site, as I understand it, is to bring the attention of others to the stories and lives of the Tongva people and to focus especially on Tongva women. Can you tell me a little bit more about more about that site and kind of your purpose behind it? And then, you know, as a teacher of women's studies, you know, you've written a book, uh, Tongva Women Inspiring the Future. And can you talk a little bit about uh, the book, obviously, but also maybe how the experience of the Tongva women was different than the experience of the Tongva men? I think because I can put everything to today, right? So the that website came to me because my great-grand, that is 15 now, was 11 doing a summer, uh, a spring program for her class and asked me if she could interview me. And I said, yes. And so she's asking me all these questions about being Tongva. And then she says, how does it feel to be a Tongva woman? Mm. And I said, I feel invisible. It's like I constantly have to repeat who I, you know, what, who I am. It's like you got to prove it, right? (laughs) And so she says, that's how I feel. Mm. And I said, absolutely not. So I work with the activist media class at Pitzer College. And I said, okay, I want a website. And so we put the website together. And uh, and then I wanted to do a book about the chiefs. And I looked at a lot of material. I found, I think this year, maybe like three chiefs, four chiefs names. But I found women who had done some powerful stuff in Los Angeles. Mm. So I wrote about my grandma who at, died when I was two, but she left. Um, she I, that's the reason I have a BIA number, because mm. she must have been an activist and put and put my when and signed me up, regardless of what was going on when, you know, in 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 the 40s, she went ahead and signed me up. And so then um, there's the first woman who delivered water door to door in Los Angeles. It's on Avenue 51, I believe, in Highland Park, right, for the Gold Line. And then there's Toy Purina that everybody knows. <laughs> I say everybody talks about Toy Purina. And then there's Azusa, the healer, who 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 is also you know well known. She was she came. The only reason I I found her was because when Reverend Seymour brought the Pentecostal movement to Los Angeles, in his books, in all the books that people wrote about him, mm-hmm. is a line saying, "The Tongva already had a healer." 
and her name's in there. But that's as far as I could get for 40 years till I finally got her story. And then there's the the first woman chief, and I call her Victoria Reed is the is the woman with the first prenup. She tells Hugo, I will marry you if you keep my tribe alive. So he, he writes those 21 letters to the Star newspaper that are in my website. And that, for people that don't know, I would encourage them to go to the site and I'll, I'll link it in the show notes as well. Okay. But that is an incredible depiction of the culture. And that really kind of set a lot of the standard of what we understand about the Tongo tribe today because of those letters. Right. Those letters. And there's a there's a place, it's a, an insurance company in Los Angeles that has actually has tapes from the Rancho Era. Remember when we used to listen to the stories on the radio before TV? Right. They have stories. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> from the radio station. And they're talking, they're talking, these people are talking to each other. The great part is the number one, the stories are true. And you get the names of the people that participated in it. I think it's Occidental. Occidental. So, but I'll check it. Yeah, they have a whole series of, of tapes, and you can download them. You know, <laughs> and it's it just it's just like listening to the story on the radio. Like that, it was a radio show, so it starts off like it did in a radio because I did remember those radio stories. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so you, know, you you said you know, during your conversation with the public library, that the most effective way that people um, can really support the Tongva tribe now is to become an ally. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very powerful word. And so I kind of wanted to ask you what you think being an ally of the, the Tongva tribe is today and how can we as people that aren't members of the tribe, but benefit from the history and the culture of the tribe, how do you see us being allies and, and how can we support your work to explore and to, and to preserve your heritage? I think, so for me, uh, being an ally is kind of like, know, know who you are, your history, where you came from, because that gives you the power of being able to respect other people, right? Because when we're sure about who we are, if somebody questions us, right? Because we're always questioned, but you know, you either have to know or not know. <laughs> but but you have so like my great granddaughter. The next year, she did uh, her Azteca side, right? She said, "I wanted you to okay." I, I gave her all the stuff I had, and then I introduced her to people. You got to be able to do that in order to. You have to admit the the wrongdoings. We and I told her it's not a prettier history than ours. You know, I gave her the warning. So it's like that if you just want to follow, when people follow, they follow temporarily, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a, a, so a lot of people that we meet through, through time that we're here on this earth, we meet and, 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 they, and then we don't have nothing to do with each other, but it's all about relationships. So that's what has happened at the mission for me. It's about a relationship. I can call and say, this is going on. I need, I need help with it, right? I need your, your voice. It's not about, I need your money. I need your voice. I need you to stand with me and understand what, you know, that we're trying to become visible. So when I taught uh, last month for Native Heritage Month, I taught at a college um, and, and I'm explaining a journey without showing them the journey, but 
I showed, I told them, you know, how the relocation happened to were the last people that took us out because you didn't know we were here. And, and the professor apologized. And I said, you don't owe me an apology. I just wanted you to know right. that you became part of that without even knowing because you weren't treated any better. The difference was that you were promised something. And so yesterday, you remember when they were giving out, uh, they were talking about the shots for the COVID. Mm-hmm. Wh- where were they? In Hollywood. <laughs> I thought, this is, you know, it's everybody comes to Hollywood. <laughs> and I always used to say, hey, everybody does Hollywood. Okay. So everything that changes, changes in Los Angeles, right? So I become, I was part of the civic memory group that, you know, we've we done a, uh, the project ends in January with the outcomes. And it's it just been really neat to participate because one day I was at a, at a water meeting and I'm saying, oh, you know, there needs to be a Tonka in every, in every board that's available, right? And then I thought, wait a minute. That might be me, so never mind. <laughs> <laughs> One more right? job for you to do, <laughs> yeah. or, or or ten more jobs for you to do. <laughs> yeah, but but it's great, and I think this is this is the first time in December that I've been totally busy. I've always done in Mosa Beach uh, students the first week of December, and we did it. They take me, and then they pass the, the tapes to the teachers. I took them the supplies and dropped them off with them, but and it still happened. Right. Mm. But it was really great. And the kids told me what they learned and everything. They sent me, you know, videotapes and stuff. Right. But I think it's really nice to to acknowledge a people. So we're a state recognized tribe. The government might not acknowledge. But keep in mind that along the coast of California, most of the tribes are not federally recognized. Oh, interesting. Doing my research. The Gabrielino Tongva, as well as the San Fernando Tongva, have been recognized by the state since 94. So where does that stand in terms of federal recognition? And is that something that is actively being pursued? I leave that to the higher ups. I, I kind of do. I'm a, I'm a, so I'm a culture officer for the tribe. I sit on a council. But so what I did was unite. The, all the rest of the groups and say, let's, let's do this work together. Forget the politics and let's just leave a better future for our children so that they have a complete puzzle and they can share with each other who we are, right? Otherwise, it's going to be continue forever and never, and never happen. <laughs> my, I guess my final question would be, you know, when you look about and think about your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, what are you optimistic about when you think about their future and their connection to their ancestry? So my great granddaughter, Marissa, who's 15, is is learning the language. Um, you know, you saw the photo in my uh, website where she has it handwritten over LA River. And uh, last Monday, her older sister that's in college came and said, Nana, I really want to know who I am. It's not just knowing that we're Tongva, Right. I really want to take part. And and I think that and so Marissa, because she's the one know learning the language really quick, <laughs> right? That I said, you need to take it to the next seven generations. Mm-hmm. So that by the time we get there, everyone 
will know the language, right? Because we, there's, it's been 50, when we started the language, maybe like 10 years ago, the last main speaker was like, had we hadn't had a speaker for 50 years. So most of the other types had at least five people, but we didn't have none. So it's like, it's important that they know the language. And I tell people all the time, it's not like God don't hear English. It's like he wants us to speak. He wants us to pray in the language he gave us. It's a beautiful way to look at it. Julia, it has been a real honor to have you on the show and to learn more about you in particular, but also the Tongva people. Thank you. Again, my special thanks to Julia for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. For more information on Julia and her work, please go to tobevisible.org and follow her on Instagram at Julia underscore Bogany. She has two books on her site that are available for purchase, Tongva Language Coloring Book and Tongva Women Inspiring the Future. I believe that in order to fully understand the present and dream of the future, that we need to learn about and from our past. The Tongva tribe has a proud and tragic history in Southern California, and my plan is to do a long-form episode on just this topic sometime in the future. However, every time I think I've settled on my resources or approach, I find something new and the process starts all over again. The most important thing for me is to do justice to a topic, so it will take me some time and I look forward to releasing it sometime next year. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing so you don't miss an episode. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Breaker, and several other platforms. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show so that others can find it. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram at crowncitypodcast. You've been listening to the Crown City Podcast, and until next time, Keep positive, stay safe, and see you around town.